0: Okay, here we are. And uh Holbert Vaughn, very, very nice to see you. And uh thank you for spending some time with me. Well,
1: thank you for having me, Anthony.
0: What a pleasure on my end. Um
1: I've been well I would I would debate that because <laughs> I uh I really appreciate what you've been doing with helping to get out different kind different perspectives on Vygotsky's work, and I especially appreciate it because you're coming at it from a very practical practitioner perspective. And that's always been something that is uh, in my heart, but always, doesn't always get to my mind when I'm writing articles. It's uh, Vera John Steiner once said, you know, it's just, it's way too theoretical. You've got to give examples. And so what you're doing is, is is a perfect anecdote for antidote for my uh tendency to get off into the abstract realm so
0: okay so i'll keep that in mind as we uh as we move forward tonight
1: because uh,
0: that that sounds like just kind of like what i'm after to be quite honest but uh before we get like deep into some of the practical applications or just some of the practical and potential teaching aspects of Vygotsky's work. Uh I have a question that sometimes I like to ask. And I'm wondering like how would you describe your role or maybe your relationship to like the wider like Vygotsky sphere so to speak.
1: Well, it's it's interesting that you pose that question because you know something that I thought about almost from the first time I was really introduced to Vygotsky in the in the early uh, 1990s uh, when I was doing my master's. And then I had the good fortune when I came to uh, UNM to work very closely with Vera John Steiner. But before coming to UNM for my doctoral studies and then for my career, I, taught there for about 25 years at University of New Mexico. Um, I spent 20 plus years as a political activist and with the Socialist Workers Party and the so I, I've uh, had a a, quite a a solid background in Marxism and um, also in a Marxist critique of the the Soviet Union, the degeneration of the Russian Revolution, and that's a perspective that Vygotsky had too. He, in his crisis article, talked about the crisis with Marxist, Marxist psychology, which was really the psychology that was sanctioned at that particular moment by the the Soviet bureaucracy headed by Stalin and so coming to Vygotsky with that kind of foundation and the understanding of the Stalinization of the Russian revolution uh, I think it was a, a relatively unique perspective because understanding what happened, the political, economic, social context in which Vygotsky was writing is really very very important. He, Lenin died in January 1924 and Vygotsky came to Moscow in January 1924 and so those two events were very very significant because Stalin pretty much turned the revolution and in the process, Marxism on its head. And then, you know, Leontiev broke with Vygotsky on the central core of Vygotsky's work and substituted something that was uh, more aligned with the, the Soviet bureaucracy. And so that, the distortion of Vygotsky's work by, Leontiev has been very, very significant, and so um, that's the foundation for activity theory and chat. And I, I do not relate to either one of those. Um, I early on in my my study of Vygotsky, I came to realize how uh, poor an understanding that uh the interpreters were having of had of uh Marxist methodology and the way that Vygotsky was using that and so I pretty much spent my time reading Vygotsky and trying as much as possible with the help of Russian students to get into the, the original Vygotsky writings and so I it's a long-winded way way to say that I I might uh, be my own little moon on which you know Vera and Jim Lantoff and Aro Tamela reside and so that's that's sort of how I fit in
0: okay yeah thank you that's that's very interesting, and uh, we t- we did talk a little bit about that when we first met briefly uh, last week. Um, but I'm 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 very naive on these topics. Um, but I would like to ask you, like, si- since you have that particular background, uh, what would you say maybe was an advantage of coming from that position, or maybe even a disadvantage, if you want, um, take it either way.
1: Well, the advantage is. I think that, well, first of all, it, it's tremendously advantageous to dig into Vygotsky's work, which is difficult to do because it's been so poorly translated and manipulated and censored. There was an Ar- Argentinian who translated from the original Russian into 1934 into the uh, uh, Spanish volume *Pensamiento y Habla*, and he noted that from the the final rendition, revision, censoring that Leontiev did in a Russian edition in 1982, upon which the 1987 *Thinking and Speech* is is based, there were. Over a thousand differences. Some of them were, you know, small stylistic, but a large number were theoretical and philosophical, and so it's difficult to wade through. And that's why I think it's it's uh, people rely a lot more on on interpretations of Vygotsky's work and. Um, And not his his works as uh not not in the original but his his actual works so i think that that gives me a tremendous advantage and if you don't understand the method that he's using everything else is built on a foundation of sand
0: Yeah, one of the first things that I was coached with when I started this, this like recent like video project and wasn't even intended to be a project that just sort of developed into one. But one of the first things I was coached with was like the importance of uh, dialectics and using that sort of method and like differences between like development
2: versus learning and understanding and just terms like that. That uh that was sort of like the seeds that were
0: dropped on the ground for me to follow, sort of. And eventually I realized that uh taking that approach, uh, I guess was one way to see this method in a way that it's not normally talked about. So yeah. I guess in, in, brief, in brief like just like the importance of you know, dialectics and the way that he approached it, I guess.
1: Well, and that's a I think that's a central point, Anthony, and uh the the issue is you know what do you mean by dialectics and that gets to be uh that's one of those terms that everybody's heard and they use in many different kinds of meaning with many different kinds of meanings and it's very you know easy for some people to get lost in hegelian dialectics but The key piece of it is really the logic and understanding dialectical logic as opposed to or in addition to formal logic. Because in that difference is the difference between analyzing a product, a manifestation of something, a phenomenon, versus the process. if you're just using formal logic, you're stuck with empirical studies in uh, looking at observable measurable phenomenon. But it's that leaves out process, everything, the universe and everything in it is in a process. And it's only by using dialectical logic that you can gain the kind of understanding about <clears throat> process that Vygotsky mentioned. And you 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 mentioned learning and development. there's a lot of misunderstanding of that. but Vygotsky talks about the, the unity of learning and development, but not the identity. So it's really different, but the same. And it's that unification that can only really be understood using dialectical logic. Um, I don't know if you've, you've ever run across a book by George Novak called An Introduction to the Logic of Marxism. No, no,
0: I've just, I've heard you reference it in in one of, one or two of your video lectures, but.
1: Well, to show my appreciation for you undertaking this very large project, I'd like to send you a copy. So if you, you send me your, your address, I'll, I'll send you a copy.
0: I'll put it on my bookshelf next to, uh, next to many books where it will look like very out of place, but I like that. I like having an eclectic.
1: Well, I you, I'm gonna do this only on the condition you put it at the top, not the bottom
0: of the <laughs> stack. Uh, my David Lynch books are always gonna be at the top, so I have to start. Okay. There. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. First things first, you know what I'm saying? So it is it is hard for me because um uh like I'm a full time teacher, um, and and uh that's where I have to spend the majority of my time. And it's very hard for me to discipline myself with this kind of little project I'm doing because one of my first goals was to like, well, well, one of my initial questions was like, can somebody understand this stuff without a decade? You know what I'm saying? Like, can you understand this in a year or two? And I have some background as well, but can somebody understand this like usefully enough without having to go deep, 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 deep and down? And uh, so I'm always trying to like, one step forward two steps back <laughs> to,
1: to,
0: you know what i'm saying
1: to, to yeah, well, I, I, I was going i was going to add that <laughs> i've been at it for nearly three decades and yeah i i'm just beginning to understand it i
0: yeah and, uh, and that's that's standard you know that's the standard answer and yeah, everybody feels that way
1: but yeah. um, so. but it shows the profundity and depth of his thought
0: yeah um so i want to just uh shift just a tad to like, I guess maybe my main goal for today, my main topic. And that would be, um, I guess the, the idea or the concept of like system of concepts. And uh, it, just give me a minute, I'm gonna just read it a little bit just to keep myself organized. Um, so it's been catching my attention for a little while now in, in four different ways. So first there's something we probably won't talk about today, which is, Dugatsky's theory itself is like a system of concepts and how it consists of many concepts either that existed or that he created or developed that all relate to each other and that relate to the main subject matter which as far as I understand is the process of the development of higher mental functions Um, how all the concepts and the laws and the methods sort of relate to each other so in short That's number one, system of concepts as like a theory with interrelated parts. And then um, forgive me for going on a bit. His his theory on how concepts are systemic or how a concept itself is a part of a system of concepts. And then I've also been thinking about, um, is there like a best approach to teaching or helping others develop Conceptual thinking in a systems way. And then lastly, I was interested in this is based on checking out your work and enjoying it and sometimes being intimidated by it, but mostly enjoying it. Um, like just any advice or experience you have with the notion of teaching in a sort of conceptual or a or systems way.
2: All right.
0: So does that sound okay? Like that sort of agenda.
1: Well considering we have 4 hours i think that's wonderful
0: <laughs> okay well the first the, just the last mainly the latter stuff mainly what i'm interested in more like the uh, i guess the pragmatic stuff maybe to get well,
1: i think that's that again is is admirable but uh one of the problems is is if people go too quickly to yeah. the practical without really understanding the foundation then it tends to be rather superficial yes so um what what is your concept of a concept
2: oh okay um
0: i guess it's a uh, the concept i would think is something that relates to a system so it's related to other concepts it's something that Be represented uh, by a word whose meaning develops both culturally and I guess internally within the user of the word. Um, Something that came into existence at some point in human culture and then kind of moved and probably uh, adjusted as it as it was useful or not useful. Uh, I think it's probably something that was a solution. some kind of problem which is why it arose even if it didn't arise neatly I guess I guess stuff along those lines
1: all right well and you you've done something that most people do Mm -hmm. um and it's something that Vygotsky keeps uh harping on and and that is that we don't start with a verbal definition and I led you in, yeah, but in, right into that. But if any time you're looking, or students, or we are looking at uh, a phenomenon, a concept, it's always important to look at its origins because, and that's really what dialectics dialectical logic is, is that it's because it's a process you've got to look at its origins how it what forces brought it into existence what forces maintain its existence where there are times of qualitative transformation within that process and then what forces take it out of existence and so if we're looking to the origins of Concepts, we can do so by looking at it uh, the way Vygotsky does, and that is phylogenetically with the species, how did concepts come into existence, and then also ontogenetically how do concept how do concepts arise in the the individual child, and one of the big problems that I'm recognizing more and more is that we tend to stop when we get to the where the origins we stop with human beings and if we're really going to understand it we not, we need to go back into the animal kingdom so the animals have concepts and when we're talking about animals we can't use the definitions and the concepts that we're using to describe human beings, which is a big, big tendency, especially in consciousness studies. Instead, we have to look at it for that particular animal. That's what Thomas Nagel back in 74, famously uh, entitled a paper what's it like to be a bat and so that's getting to the actual experience of an organism and not applying human terms to it so if we look at the origins of a con- concept for humanity it's built on those that conceptual structure that animals have and humans had before they took that dialectical leap that Vygotsky talks about to human consciousness and so the and that's where he talks about potential concepts that humans have that have inherited from evolution up to the time of this dialectical leap that which went before and so um if we we look at the first first concepts how did concepts come into existence for you know early early humans so i can pose that question so i can get a drink this is this would be pre-language right this would be well it's i would i would i would put it right up at that cusp
0: this is some sort of maybe the need for some sort of shared reference or shortcut
1: okay and that
0: part the start of abstraction possibly
1: well and that's that's very true and that's what marx talked about with and angles and i always try to say marx and angles because The two of them were very much a collaboration, co-thinking and partnership. Um, And Marx looks at tool use as being, bringing about this qualitative transformation because in making it, it's not just tool use, it's tool creation because other animals will use tools but they don't create them you know other than a chimp maybe taking some branches off for a twig to go into a termite mound or something like that but humans when they create it they're they're building in this at- intent and they're building in this a level of abstraction that's fundamental for human language and i use language only to refer to human communication all organisms all life communicates and in that communication it's there it's the development creation of the individual and the social those two are dialectically united from the beginning and so anytime it gets to be too much just an analysis of the individual separate from the social, you're missing the essence. And that's another big piece of Vygotsky's work is when there's a unity, the brain mind, instead of separating it for analysis, he says, we have to maintain the whole. And for him, the kernel is meaning and if we look at how meaning comes into existence before that it's sense all organisms have sense apparatus to take information and process it and act on it but that that meaning comes and if we we go back to you know very early humans with rocks let us say creating a a, a sharp edge banging rocks together that sound that's whether it's a you know a grunt or the sound of the actual objects that sound becomes incorporated into the whole affective experience
2: mm-hmm.
1: of that tool creation then that that sound over time and this is a process when we say over time could take you know thousands of years but that sound let's just say rock that that sound then has meaning for another and that meaning then is the key and the sound gets abstracted from the affective experience and is used to regulate activity so if a rock is not present then early humans have that sound the concept of and they can go look for a rock and then they can plan in the future which is something that chimpanzees or bonobos cannot do they will if there's a stick and bananas they'll knock down the bananas with the stick but if there's no stick in their visual field then they won't go look for one well in that moment in that extended moment of creation of meaning there also it's also a creation of a concept because that that word rock contains the meaning, and that meaning is this physical object, but it's also a tool, becomes a a tool. And a fundamental jumping point, and this is crucial for the way that children develop concepts is generalization. Because that, that rock sound is not a only one rock it's rocks in general and that abstract thinking process of generalization is key to human language so right there you have meaning word or, or words generalization and then concept and then it becomes a question of further generalizing that concept. So rock can then become weapon, can become tool, can become, you know, partake in artistic en- endeavors. And so then it's this process of building up this what I term, a conceptual neuronal network and that's that then becomes socialized and it becomes conceptual understanding for humanity at large and that process starts with the small little human group groupings and grows up and develops to the point that you and I can share share our concepts of concepts speaking into a piece of metal
0: mm. so so one of the things yeah right here so one of the things um that was jumping out to me this just was not at the was not at all obvious is um the this the sounds the, maybe the feelings the senses the sensations that go with that maybe pre-language sort of, but like that activity, I guess, is is very much part of the word that eventually will develop. Um, it's like, it's not it's not like an intellectual only type thing, the, the creation of the language, I guess, it's like really rooted in the
1: experience. Does that sound? Sounds right like on. It's, and it's, I would just add affect. Yeah. And, it's, you know, to take it over to the individual child, the word a word and uh, when you, you mentioned the word and we tend to get focused on the word and this is a huge huge problem hmm. with the way that Vygotsky's concept is as slova which is the meaning and slova is used as a synecdoche uh representing language not just a particular word and so it's meaning through these languaging process processes because Vygotsky says that when it becomes internalized the meaning sheds the word and it so it's the meaning that's constructing this internal system this internal conceptual neuronal network it's not the word it's the meaning but because of the way it's been translated into English as word meaning the focus is on the external word and not on the internal system so to take this for an individual child with a a word doggy so that affective experience and it's really important the the notion of affect is is lost i think a lot especially in teaching that we're we're teaching the the content and not the students and the students learning processes are very much affected by affect so that child then just, real quick, ed- just I'm real sorry, quick,
0: to- very sorry to interrupt you but i, I know affect is a word that Almost everybody understands the word affect, but in this context, how how could you define it, like in a simple way? Affect.
1: Affect is the experience that all organisms. Thank you for interrupting. Too. Yes, yeah, so,
0: <laughs> I not didn't, I didn't mean to. I was trying to find a moment.
1: Oh, that's fine. I think that's that's perfect, and uh, I I love it when people interrupt. As long as they have put down the breadcrumbs to help me get back to where we were Got before, yep. <laughs> okay. yeah, so goal. so um, let's just go back to the one cell bacteria, the very you know beginning, beginning of life. That one cell is receiving information from its environment in patterns of energy thermal uh, chemical electrical energy and that cell has to, to in order to survive has to decide is this positive for survival or negative for survival does this feel good or does this feel bad and that's affect this experience that we're going through does it have a positive or negative uh, connotation and that then determines what activity and once you get up into human consciousness and conscious awareness that's where you get into human emotions animals do not have emotions in spite of what everybody says about their dog wagging their tail they're happy they're
0: yeah that's going to be your most controversial statement of the uh, of the evening
1: <laughs> well the thing is is that emotions are human constructions applying applied to humans and that fundamental point if we take those concepts that are developed for humans by humans about humans and try to apply them to the dog we are making a huge logical leap it's fallacious so i agree dogs have all life has affective states but when that dog is wagging its tail that's a dog's affective state and no matter how many labels we put on it it doesn't negate the fact that it's a dog's affective state so so let's get back to the puppy speaking of dogs and affect right. so that <laughs> that little uh, does that now first does that help clarify yes i appreciate that
0: and and, and as you talk about the uh i guess the development of the concept dog or even the word dog if you can at some point try to uh maybe define in your own way uh conceptual neuronal network at some point that, that would be very helpful if you want
1: well we might as well do that right now is that you know when we we talked about those first words those first the first words are perceived and taken in and processed by the neurons, by the neuronal network that exists. There's 84 billion neurons in the human brain. And each one of those has dendrites and it could be a thousand or 10,000 connections there are more connections inside the the human brain than there are stars in our known universe and so it's it's um, unbelievably complex well that information comes in and it gets processed and in that processing if it's good for survival or successful then those synapses and the neurotransmitters are strengthened so that an action potential will go down that path into this this network. Well, this network for humans, well, animals have these concepts too, but for human language, then what we're doing is building these concepts. And those concepts then, become part of this neuronal network. And this is, a, I think, a fundamental point on how the brain-mind functions. Memory is not just stored in a certain location because the, the brain, all brains are anticipating so that when... Inf- sound waves or light waves come in rather than have them be fully processed which takes more time which could mean life or death and death in the jungle or in the wild there's this anticipatory priming that takes plate takes care of some of the processing and so with with memory then it's not going back and retrieving it's creating And so this network of concepts that we develop and that are part of the human conceptual understanding, these these concepts are created, recreated, information comes in and that's where they go. It's part of this this, uh, conceptual neuronal network. So it's looking both at how the brain, mind is is processing it and primed to processing it and how that information is coming in and transduced, sensed and transduced into the perceptual apparatus. So now let's get back to that little, little, little girl with her puppy and and into your classroom so well so that doggy that little sound doggy then uh is part of the smell this you know the sound the, the taste the licking all of that that's it's part of that affect affective experience and then over time that sound takes on a meaning and then that meaning is internalized and in that internalization that's where it loses its connection with the actual word and Vygotsky then talks about this whole system that's built based on meaning and he talks about meaning as the internal system of the sign operation and so he's taught this internal system is very similar to what i'm talking about with the conceptual neuronal network and then that child generalizes it it's not just my doggy all doggies and those are kitties and and as that generalization takes place they're building their own concepts of how the world works and how their position in the, the world and they bring all of those concepts that uh, system to the classroom where they're introduced to academic concepts concepts from humanity And it's that interrelationship between the conceptual understanding that a child brings to school and its relationship to the concepts that are being presented in the classroom. And to be effective teaching, you need to understand where your students are in their conceptual understanding and how that fits into the academic concepts that you're teaching. And in thinking about that, it's also very important to look at what Vygotsky talks about with crisis, where periods, um, and he the word period has a lot of co- different connotations for mm-hmm. psychology, but he talks about age one you know children getting up walking around so their concept of the world change then when they start gaining language and developing a concept of self change and then when they go to school another way and then in adolescence where they begin thinking in in concepts and so it's important for teachers to understand where you know in this general process of development their students are and then where those students are in relationship to the concept that they're trying to teach the students will bring their system of concepts the teacher will have the system of concepts and it's bringing those together that is key to effective teaching and the big problem is that the teachers are over here with academic concepts they understand them and they think if they just put it forward that students will understand it students are fitting those concepts into their own network or not fitting them in which is often the case and Therein lies the difference between conceptual knowledge and conceptual understanding. If the students are just taking in the concepts that are being presented, they can go through all their schooling, get straight A's, Mm -hmm. not have conceptual understanding because conceptual understanding means that the student, that the teacher has effectively with the student in what Vygotsky calls Oberchenia, the teaching learning processes, have had those students not get rid of these concepts but to, to build on them. And he, he, he talks about, there's this German word Aufhaben, which talks about this process of remaining the same, but changing. And so these everyday concepts remain as a foundation, but the academic concepts are sort of growing down into the ground of the act of the everyday concepts and in the process, transforming them. And that's where conceptual understanding Takes place. You know, you can have not <clears throat> knowledge without understanding, but you can't have understanding without knowledge. So the big challenge then is, how does a teacher understand for their particular grade level where their students are at conceptually? So how do you do that, Anthony?
0: Um, before I answer that question, uh, <laughs> I do want to, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways, but before I answer that, I want like to clarify a couple things, please. Um, uh, let me just lay them out. So one All is right. in a very simple way. Uh, what does it mean? What does thinking in concepts mean? Okay, so that's my first question,
2: and well, then that's- let's
1: since you may have a list there let's no, no, it's only two it's only two all right to, okay
0: uh and i just don't want to forget my second one
1: which was all right that's fine
0: is it is it really important or helpful in your opinion to to uh to make visible the conceptual system your phrase i think that a student has and that a teacher might have as far as a the, system in which an academic concept fits is it helpful to make these visual so that when they sort of merge it's easier and is there like a way to if this is growing down into the soil is it is like the tilling of the soil like really uh, essential so to speak that would be my second question and the, and the first one was um like how would I you take any
1: concept. yeah well, let's take the second one first um it is very helpful I think and I, I, I believe you've looked at some of the, the videos of mine where I, I, I try to graphically represent these abstract concepts I'm not sure whether it's very successful or not but I at least try and that
0: yeah I mean you have you have the most you have the most interesting uh, PowerPoint slides that I've, I've seen maybe ever if not in a long time and uh, those are those are just very conceptual
1: in and of themselves. But uh I'm sorry to interrupt. No, that when you're giving me a comment <laughs> that, you could interrupt all the time you want. Um thank you very much for that. That that makes me feel yeah, better. They're very thoughtful, it's clear. Well, I should I should probably take the next step and make them available. Hmm. And you can help me with that. I've got them all. I have them recorded, but I've just got to get them up to YouTube in an organized yeah. way. Um, so that, that visualization is, is very important, but one way to think about visualization is, we're, we, is it's graphic. So what I do when I'm starting off with uh, a unit, What I do is uh, myself think about the the concept that I'm trying to convey in that that unit. And then to think about the subordinate concepts upon which that that concept (coughs) is raised and the superordinate where that concept is leading and there you're that's that system of of concepts and so it's Im- important to look at where they're the subordinate concepts and if students don't understand the subordinate concepts they're not going to understand the concept that your the teachers trying to convey mm-hmm. so that's where you, you start with the subordinate concepts and find out where students are at with those concepts. And I developed this uh, technique. I call it a protocol because it's a whole system of techniques. Um, and I, it's for uh, for a grant that I, I did with uh, the US Department of Education on <clears throat> It's what's called academic literacy for all. And it was aimed towards helping teachers in middle school and high school understand a way, whatever their subject matter, uh, how to effectively do this process of helping students gain a conceptual understanding of the concept that is part of that, that unit. And in this protocol, we we start off with having students write a couple of sentences. And that right there is visualization. It's that process of writing down and thinking and having to represent graphically their thoughts helps them. So they, they write a couple of sentences on the, the concept. And then in a group of four, they they discuss and create two new sentences with their elbow partner and then after that they in the group of four come up with two two sentences and there's other things I do with it but then if they read those out loud just those two sentences from each group then I know as a, a teacher I've got a little bit of a feel for where where the class as a whole individually and socially collectively stands in relationship to this concept and then I can tailor my uh, teaching to help go from that foundation and build and of course every single student is going to have their own conceptual understanding network and so for a teacher you know i i taught high school with classes of 30 35 students and mm-hmm. so i use dialogue journals which is another whole topic uh, to help me understand them not just uh, conceptually but as human beings as mike rose has a book which i think is sort of essential for educators and it's lives on the boundary and he he underscores the importance of making a human connection and that's what I try to do is to make a this human connection with every single student and it you know it takes time but it pays off and they then it engages them in a, a lot deeper way so having that that foundation then as we go along building building activities which will allow each student to perform from where they're coming from all leading to this goal which is understanding the concept and one of the big differences with the understanding is the ability to apply it in different circumstances in which it was learned or to a different different uh different field subject area you know for example for you you're english teacher right and so you you know the concept of genre yeah so if i'm teaching the concept of genre for a, a prompt what i i would do is to have the students write two sentences on how is music organ how do you how is music organized (laughs) and in 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 doing it that way um i don't say how do i organize or how do you Mm -hmm. because then there are two sentences it's about i and then when you're sharing it and creating with a partner you you miss the we and so how is music organized all students have some concept of that and that's the key to the prompt for those two is can every student write about it so then they write about their music and you get into classifications and how do you determine which is hip hop and you know all of the different and then they get that concept of classification and grouping and categories and those concepts then they can apply in biology or chemistry or and just as another example you know we talked about this previously just when we were you know informally chatting and you know if you're going to start a unit on romeo and juliet the prompt that that my the teachers i was working with came up with what makes a good movie and then you know you start getting into comedy and romance and tragedy and adventure and and so you start getting them thinking about those those concepts and then when they have those concepts they can then begin to you as a teacher then tie them to their own lives and Romeo and Juliet so it it then means that you're building the foundation for them to access the concepts that. Are in a language which will be very difficult for them to penetrate
2: mm-hmm.
1: so those are those are things that then get into the concept of systems of of, of concept and then when you 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 asked about adolescence that a good good way to think what's well, the way Vygotsky thinks about it so is the the difference between mathematics and algebra mm-hmm. the with mathematics there's you're looking at the relationship between an object and a symbol you know 5 mm-hmm. and with algebra you're looking at the relationship between two symbols two abstract symbols and it's the ability to hold one concept in mind and be able to manipulate it and use it with a second concept and that's the essence of of thinking in concepts and vygotsky points out that this is not something that that just follows in the regular developmental path. And I think this, uh, you know, one of your things you mentioned early on was relationship between development and, and learning. The concepts of, with algebra are not going to be come just by develop, by development. You need the learning in there. And this is where it's so important for teachers to understand what it means to think in concepts and the transitions that their students are going through. Because if it's just performance up on the board with you know, four equations, They can do the equations, they have knowledge of them, but they don't have the the concept. And to get that concept, the teacher has to understand this leap that they're going through and meet them where they are and help them to think in, in concepts. And that's where learning guides development. And so it was in the local school district here a few years ago, something like 69% of all students failed algebra one. It wasn't because the students didn't get it, it's because the teachers couldn't teach it, because they didn't understand where their students were conceptually, and they didn't understand the subordinate concepts that are needed to access the concepts in in algebra and the subordinate concept. so, so that's like, yeah
0: that's very 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 helpful um i enjoyed math quite a bit and i was pretty good at it when i was in middle school and high school but it's been a while is there is algebra a topic that you're comfortable ripping on for a little bit just to just to be uh well be, i Many teachers are not thinking in these terms, or at least using this language where, um, you know, we have things that we're trying to accomplish in our lessons, and we're not always thinking of, uh, even just thinking in concepts and consciously helping students to make such leaps and thinking about, you you know, we think about groundwork, you know, like setting the groundwork and trying to help them walk up the steps so to speak but uh we're not we're not always saying here's the topic or the subject matter of the day or even of the unit what is the conceptual system within this within which this topic fits um so is uh i, I
1: guess if you don't want to riff on algebra is there like uh-huh. you no? could you could it's it it's it's interesting that that you you raise this because when I was very young, I I did I did well in in uh, mathematics, and then when it came to be to do algebra, my uh, initiative to learn was replaced by a my initiative to uh, show off, be the class clown, misbehave, rebel, and so. I, I wasn't as studious as you were and so i but i do remember it's just i can recreate it that sitting in a particular chair in a particular room <laughs> with algebra algebra one and experiencing this different way of thinking and, I, and that's where the joy of mathematics resides is that discovery and that's what's so absent from especially as you go up is the joy of of mathematics and so i i was at that point i wasn't thinking about Vygotsky, but it was it was it really was thinking in concepts and then I, i experienced the same thing when i I started calculus that this is a whole new way of, of thinking and it was exciting, but it entailed, entailed a lot of talk, some work and I, I wasn't too much into work in those days. So yeah. I, I, I don't have, I am not very conversant in algebra, but was there a, a particular point that you were hoping to make or?
0: Yeah, I, you say something like uh, you know the ability to transfer uh, your understanding in different contexts is a demonstration of thinking and concepts. Whether it's procedurally, performatively, or even abstractly, like you know, you could learn something and then use it elsewhere in a semi or even
1: unrelated way.
0: Would that be an illustration of thinking and concepts?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think okay. that's a very good point. Okay, um, it it goes back to a this dial using dialectical logic that the irony is is that we just in our everyday life use dialectical thinking because dialectics dialectics didn't come out of heraclitus's or hegel's or marx's head dialectics came out of the universe when the universe came into existence, dialectics came into existence because it's, there's that qualitative transformation. It's constant change, which is a a part of dialectical logic. It's, there's nothing constant but change. And then qualitative transformations. There's a qualitative transformation that brings the universe into being. And it there's the forces that are at play with the before and then after the big bang and the introduction of gravity and space time, those hold for all of the the universe. And those, that process is a dialectical process. And so that's, you know, Engels has a book, The Dialectics of Nature, where you look at the phenomenon to understand it. And this is this is a key, key point that Vygotsky reiterates in, over. And that is that with verbal definition, if you start with verbal definition, you're missing out on the being or the essence of whatever it is you're looking at instead of that you go and look at the phenomena try to understand it see you know see if you can find out what brings it into existence its process the materials all of that and from that develop the definition as opposed to the other way around I mean, there's some forty definitions of consciousness. So, you know, it's, it's it is it's a, a fundamentally different approach, and that you know it it divides, uh, you know, approaches that focus solely on the epistemological, the the knowledge, the beliefs based on empirical studies, and studies that look at the being of something its existence which is the an ontological approach and vygotsky said you know based again on on marx's his theory that it's you've got to have both you've got the empirical epistemological and the ontological and those two together and you are the key if you're really going to look at the essence of what you're studying.
0: So I have something that you can help me with maybe in the very near future in my classroom Uh, by way of example. So you you talked about uh, introducing the concept of photosynthesis through an accessible opening question um, and having students go through the ALA protocol which starts with being able to write two sentences pretty much drawing upon your everyday concepts right so yeah. how do you how do you come up with a, a an opening prompt and i know you alluded to this briefly but is there any way to maybe just break down
1: your thought process so as opposed to me telling you what that prompt was you already know it but let's do a little co-thinking about how how do you come up with Yeah, and so i'm i'm asked you start with what what are the subordinate concepts behind the concept so what are the subordinate concepts for photosynthesis
0: um uh, i don't know uh the fact that life draws upon other elements of life like some sort of uh like plants draw upon the light
1: ah nourish themselves okay Okay. so we're dealing with light and it's light but it's energy Mm -hmm. okay and and then what happens to that energy it gets uh utilized and maybe transformed in some way it's got to be with this is this concept of transduction is one that's a, a, a extremely important and one that is rarely talked about so a plant will sense the light waves then The light waves don't go right in any more than the light waves go into our brain. They're transduced. They're transduced into the kind of energy that the organism is using to survive. So that there's this process of energy coming in, it's sensed, and then it's transduced and that transduction is where the unity of for humans where the unity of the brain mind exists because it's that transduction is taking from the sensation and then changing it into the whatever however the perceptive apparatus of that organism functions so the light energy comes into it's sensed by the plant transduced into chemical energy and that chemical energy that process of transducing the light energy into chemical energy is that photosynthesis so then you're you're dealing with the concepts of of transduction, of light energy, of chemical energy. And those processes hold for all life. And and so then
0: so those are not just plant-related
1: no it's every, yeah. everything that so would that be,
0: would that make them superordinate or would that make them subordinate
1: well what do you think super well those are those are the th- those are the concepts that students have to have
2: hmm. light
1: energy transduction and chemical energy are the concepts that they need to access photosynthesis. And then if you look up at this, the, the concept superordinates,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and you get into the chlorophyll the whole way that the plant grows, survives. There's a, a wonderful uh, documentary called Aware in which this woman, Monica, uh, galliano from uh australia talks about plants and plant life and how they sense and perceive and act on their their world and how they they communicate so the superordinate ones are what that photosynthesis leads into so then based on that we're we're talking about something that's fundamental for all life Right? So then that's a question that all students could answer would be, how can you tell if something's alive? I see. And well, they're engaging. Gonna, yeah, yeah. But they're not going to write about photosynthesis, right. that the ten- transduction. Yeah, yeah, right. A very good point. The, the uh, tendency of teachers is to ask for verbal definitions so if we're going to start a unit on photosynthesis what is photosynthesis Mm -hmm. you know that's the end the beginning is getting that concept and so then they write a couple of sentences every student can you know right have some idea about that and then you you know as a teacher you then get into all right well what does life need all life needs light energy that's the you know the so without that there is no life and then all life is involved with chemical energy and electrical en- energy. And so when they then start thinking about life and how life starts and all of that, you know, you get down into the cyanobacteria and things and there's some wonderful wonderful slides on I don't know on uh, cyanobacteria that are just absolutely incredible. So it's just that that's I think a a good way and the thing too you know you get you get a couple of teachers who work together collaborate and this is one unfortunate aspect of American education is, is there's very little time set aside for teacher collaboration and that's really essential and so then if you're you know you've got a group of other English teachers let say or biology teachers And, you know, it's just lockstep with the curriculum. Then you're doing a unit, you know, you talk together about, okay, well, let's think about what would be a good prompt that the key every student can write about it. What is photosynthesis? You might have a couple of students write about it, but you want something that every student can, can write about. That's fundamental because they're drawing from their own you know conceptual understandings and then something that's you know engaging related to their lives and so it's it, plus you add a little bit of an
0: element of competition when you have when you have the voting part
1: yeah yeah the, you know
0: that accesses is uh, different emotions and stuff and motivation uh, yeah and then we're and then we're ending with some sort of formal or official or more technical academic definition at the end of the sequence
1: is that right you're building it yeah. you see that's what the students are doing is they're not taking the definition from bold letters in the back and memorizing it so they can pass the test you're you're building it it's you know it's that sort of reminds me of you know almost 50 years well 50 years ago I guess it was uh when I was teaching eighth grade grammar class that instead of we didn't have a book we just had notebooks you know in spiral and then we as a class developed our grammar you know we started thinking back to early humans what were some of those first words and Okay, there are objects and then actions, and you know, and you then just start building it. And you then build this conceptual understanding of grammar, not based on definitions or prescriptions, but understanding how and why grammar developed or the language developed that way. The language develops, grammar has a being, it exists apart from any definitions from any books. Humans learn to speak not by looking at a book, but, and so, we just tend to look at it, you know, prescriptively, descriptively, and not looking at it in terms of its origin and development. And it's in that origin and development that the essence of whatever you're looking at resides.
2: Very very helpful. Very nice. Um well I do want to be
0: respectful of your
1: time, I think. Well you (laughs) I think I I, I I, I slowed
0: you down at a few different points, so I apologize for that.
1: But no no there's you I was gonna say that um you no need for apologies because this is this is what I love. Okay, good. I I just have to throw in a little thing to honor my mother who just had her 100th birthday. But she, for 50 years, she volunteered at an elementary school and went there and read with uh, kindergarteners and first grade students. And uh, for her service, she was awarded this statewide award that goes to the the person, non-educator, who has made the biggest contribution in the state of Colorado too much. She got it and she got up and said, well, I guess I'll, uh, I've been doing it for, you know, this many years and and I love it. And I guess I'll do it until I drop. (laughs) And it wasn't quite until she dropped, but she was going down and working with students when she was 97, 98 years old, so. Yeah. You can you can see what a, a lucky person I am to yeah. have had a mother like that.
0: Hundred percent, and you and you're and you're a similarly generous, uh, at least as far as what I could tell. Um, well, you you're with me, hundred percent, and uh, and you, and you like to share your your ideas and your work publicly as well.
1: Yeah, suppose this is this is what gives me great joy. I'd much rather do this and sit down and labor over an academic article <laughs>
0: sounds good um maybe we could do it again sometime that might well i think
1: i think that's a must okay good because they were just
0: scratching the surface here i think
1: yeah i've got 30 years worth for you yeah yeah all right
0: <laughs> yeah i'll take what i can get <laughs> so i really appreciate it well and, it's good uh, yeah it's, it's a pleasure I've been, yeah i've been i've been checking out your work from a distance for a while now and and uh uh, eventually, I built up the nerve to, to reach out to you, and it was really nice uh, so far. So let's keep it going, huh?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I as uh, thank you for your the, the comp compliments, and I, I want to return them because I'm, as I said at the beginning, I am extremely impressed with the time and effort that you're putting into something that I think is extremely worthwhile and you're doing it from the perspective of how can this be made useful for all teachers in the, in the classroom. So thank you for what you're doing.
0: Yeah, thanks. So uh, I'll talk to you soon and I appreciate it. Yep. All right, all Holford, right. take it thank easy. Thank you, bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.